Thank you. I'm, I don't know much about malpractice. The only thing I can tell you is I'd still, for dermatology, the number one uh, malpractice case is uh, failure to diagnose. So it's, it's surprisingly not cosmetic. It's actually failure to di diagnose melanoma. Uh, and if you're a plastic surgeon, you're going to get sued for sure. So other than that, that's all I know about malpractice. Um, but I want to talk to you about surgical myths, which I think is a, I, a hopefully, you know, I know it's a long day. I'm sure you're all tired. So hopefully this is a, a fun talk for you. Um, I have no conflicts of interest for this talk. And um, what I wanted to tell you about surgical things is, you know, medical points, medicines you give, drugs, they've been, they have to get past the FDA. So they have to do phase three clinical trials. This involves thousands of patients, millions of dollars. You know, when you give a new drug, trust me, it's really been tested, it's really safe. Surgical things, how do you learn surgical things? Well, because someone told you so. You know, some professor that you respected and loved told you this, and then you go through your whole life just because somebody told you so. And that's how many surgical things can't be studied because there's no control group. It's not reasonable to study them. So a lot of our cherished surgical beliefs are anecdotal. And I wanted to go over some of these anecdotes that turn out to not be true. So how many have heard this one? Is this one that you've, thou shalt not use epinephrine on the fingertip, right? Thou shalt not, because thou shalt kill thy finger if you do it. You know, that the epinephrine is just so incredibly vasoconstrictive that the end of their finger will drop off, or the end of the nose or the penis. That's absurd. That's just absurd. It's not true. There have been two studies looking at this, one in the dermatology literature and one in the plastic surgery literature. And these two papers are identical. And basically what they found is they went back to 1880, when lidocaine first became available, and they could find 50 cases of digital gangrene following local anesthesia, and all of these were from the early 20th century. These cases used multiple medication and techniques. It wasn't really clear what they were doing. There have been no reports of digital gangrene since the commercial preparations of lidocaine with epinephrine were induced in 1948. 1948. So next time you've got to cut something off the tip of someone's fingers, for God's sake, use the lidocaine with epinephrine. It's much better. It won't bleed so much. And the same thing with other distal sites like the nasal tip or the penis. Okay, how about this one? When you're doing an ellipse, thou shalt make thy ellipse three by one. Everybody hear that one? Thou shalt. Or thou shalt have permanent dog ears, which will look terrible forever. So this is what we're told. For the best cosmetic result, the length to width ratio of an elliptical excision should be at least three to one, if not four to one. And a dog ear must be completely corrected at the time of surgery or it will be permanent. Um, and I saw this paper that kind of piqued my interest in it. Uh, round excision, perfectly circular. Round excision of small, benign, papular, and dome-shaped melanoxysic nevi in the face. And they said they felt that the round excisions were as good or better as the elliptical excision. Well, that's impossible, right? We're all taught that can't be. They didn't take dog ears. So I found this paper, which actually is several years old. So it's been in the literature for a while. Just nobody bothered to read it. Um, comparison of wound closure by means of dog repair and elliptical excision. 51 excisions were prospectively studied. So they drew the predicted ellipse, four to one. So they're gonna draw that out, four to one. Then they're gonna excise the tumor as a perfect circle. So they excise it as a circle. And what did they find? And then they tried to undermine and close. And they found that 28% of these circles closed with no dog ear repair. 
They just closed. Fine, flat and smooth. They found that 38% had one dog ear repair, and 30, only 34% required two dog ear repairs. And if you put everything together, overall, the length to width ratio was closer to two to one. And I'll tell you kind of a funny anecdotal story about that along those lines. You know, like you, I learned, thou shalt do three to one. Thou shalt not leave dog ears. Um, and I started my career <coughs> on faculty at the University of Miami. And I noticed that the chairman of plastic surgery was leaving dog ears. I would send him a repair, and he would do it primarily, and he would leave two dog ears on either side of the line. And I thought, how can this poor son of a bitch not know, you know, this that we all know in dermatology? And then I thought about that for a minute. What are the chances that the chairman of plastic surgery is wrong and I'm right? Zero. Zero. And so it turns out... Um, the dog ears are not forever. So we're all taught that. We're taught dog ears forever. If you leave a dog ear after a surgery, they're going to have a dog ear there the rest of their life. That is clearly untrue. Certain areas, and I'll give you a specific example, the back of the hand. You can leave the dog ears from hell on the back ear of the hands. They're gone in a week. They go away. There are areas where that's not true. The forehead, they don't go away. So this is something you learn from experience. Um, if a dog ear does not resolve, if it didn't go away, do you think it's hard to make it go away later? No, you take like a three millimeter punch biopsy, you can make it go away easily. And that's why I think the plastic surgeons were willing to leave them because um, they, they'll revise. You know, they go back all the time. And we in dermatology, we like to do one shot, we don't go back, we don't revise. And so that's why we get an idea that we've got to take the dog ears um, there. And you know, my professor, who, the one who told me to cut out the dog ears, always said, a long, flat scar looks better than a short, lumpy one. And my answer to him, respectfully now, is no, a short, flat scar looks better than a long scar. So here's a, a case of mine. And that's a pretty big dog ear right there and right there, right? Now, if I wanted to excise this dog ear, I would need to go to about here, agreed? to get that to be flat. Here they are in a week. It's gone. Look at the size of these dogs. You see this dog here right here? Now I'm sure you've all had, for those of you who have done surgery, doing excisions on the forearms, shit man, you're gonna go 360 chasing the dog ears. You know, you're not gonna be able to get it to go flat. Here he is in a week. Not completely gone, but much, much better. Here's a lady who's got a defect of the temple. We're gonna do an advancement flap. You see how we're advancing this tissue straight up? And then we've just gotta close here and here. This closed fine. I've got a dog ear right here. If I cut this dog ear out, I'm gonna be into her eyeball. Why don't I do nothing? And she did just fine. So, this study finally came out, a prospective study of 43 dog ears following excision in 26 patients. They measured the height of the dog ear from immediate post out out to 180 days. Dog ears regressed with time in all 43 cases. Dog ears regressed completely in 19 of the 43 cases. For those that completely regressed, mean time for that to happen is 132 days. So that means you've got to give it three or four months to settle down for the for the dog ear to go away. And the probability of complete regression is greater in dog ears less than or equal to eight millimeters in height. So that can give you a pretty good indication. I can also tell you location matters. You know, you can't have too big of dog ears on the back of the hands. They just go away. 
the mandible forehead, they're going to tend to stay. They're not going to go away. Non-absorbable sutures. Okay, so when you do an excision, you put a vicryl or something like that buried. And what do you put on the outside? Nylon, proline. Though they're non-absorbable plastics, right? So we're all taught that non-absorbable sutures are always preferred for the cuticular, which is the correct term for the outside suture, are preferred for the cuticular suture because absorbable sutures are too inflammatory, and specifically gut, guts of form protein, it's quite inflammatory. Um, or their braided configuration, you know, you've used Vicryl, and you know how soft it is in your hands, and it, it, it doesn't maintain the shape of the package. That's because it's braided. It has a braided configuration that makes it soft and easy to handle. Um, but that that braided configuration would favor infection by wicking liquid up into the, into the braids. And therefore, what would happen is you would get too much inflammation and too much infection. You'd be more likely to have dehiscence in the short run and a lousy cosmetic outcome in the long run. So we were all, I was taught, we were all taught, absorbable on the inside, permanent suture on the outside, and then they got to come back to your office later to get the sutures out. And do you really think they're dying to come back to your office because you want to see them to get the sutures out? Really? You think they want to come back? The potential benefits of using an absorbable suture on the outside are that the patient does not have to return at a certain time. They would rather not come back to your office, to be perfectly frank, as curious as you are to, to see what happened. Um, and there's... Um, there's no discomfort. If you don't have to take it out, you're not going to hurt them. And that's especially important in children because it kind of scares them and freaks them out a little bit when you're taking the stitches out. However, an inferior functional or cosmetic result would not be justified by these benefits. So who studied this? The emergency room doctors studied this because kids don't like to come back to have stitches out in the emergency room in a week or back to their pediatrician or wherever they have to go. It traumatizes them. So 95 children with traumatic lacerations were randomized for closure with plain gut or nylon. So they're going to put gut on the outside. That's very inflammatory. Does anybody work with gut? It's very inflammatory. Um, they're going to put gut on the outside. And they were evaluated at 10 days for healing and four to five months for cosmetic outcome. At 10-day follow-up, there was no difference in wound evaluation, including infection rates and dehiscence rates. So that turned out to not be true. And at four to five months, evaluations by blinded plastic surgeons showed no difference in cosmetic outcome. In fact, plain gut appeared to give a slightly better cosmetic result. Go figure. And another paper, very similar, 41 patients with facial skin cancers had repaired with the facial plastic surgeons. All wounds were repaired with either rotation or advancement flaps. The buried sutures were foral monocryl, which is a monofilament absorbable. And then one half of the wound, the cuticular sutures were 5-O-proline, which is a non-absorbable plastic. Um, and the other half with 5-O-vicryl-repede. Vicryl-repede is just what it sounds like. It's vicryl, but it dissolves quickly. Because if you use regular vicryl on the outside, it'll take a month or two to dissolve away. Vicryl-repede will dissolve away in about two weeks. At 9 to 12 months follow-up, no clinically important difference in cosmetic outcome could be detected by two blinded physicians. So it's perfectly fine. So you could use a single suture, frankly, um, on the inside and the outside. Okay, new answers to old myths. How many of you, all may be too young to have heard this, how many of you have heard or maybe even told your patients, you receive 80% of your whole life sun exposure before the age of 18? Have you ever heard that one? used to be a real common one. People said it all the time. 
So dermatologists told their patients they receive 80% of their lifetime sun exposure by age 18. And this has an implication. The implication is that sun protection is less important in people who are older than 18 um, than, than those who are younger because the cow's already out of the barn. This is false. The 80% number came as an extrapolation from a calculation published in 1986 that sunscreen use by young people would reduce their lifetime risk of skin cancer by 78%. Never said anything about how much sun exposure they were going to get in their whole life. The original publication calculated the incidence of non-melanoma skin cancers related to the square of UV dosage. It did not calculate actual dosage. So a more recent analysis of actual UV exposure indicates that Americans receive less than 25% of total UV exposure by age 18. Sun protection is equally important in older and younger people. Here's another one. How many of you tell patients don't ever even think about using Neosporin? Is anybody? Because everybody in the universe is allergic to it, right? And actually, specifically, you hear that 10% of the population is allergic. Let me assure you, if 10% of the population was allergic to a product, the FDA would take it off the market. I mean, that would just be a dangerous product. They wouldn't allow it. The truth is that neomycin is a common allergen for patients who have contact dermatitis. So these are people who come in with an itchy rash. And then you patch test them, and you will find 10% of the time they're allergic to neomycin. Your surgical patients don't have contact dermatitis, do they? They have a cancer, that they're a cyst, or whatever the heck it is you're excising. So they don't come in with contact dermatitis. The incidence of allergy to neomycin in the general population is less than 0.1%. It's not any more than it is to bacitracin or any other product. Uh, by the way, a pearl, uh, contact dermatitis to sylvidine has never been reported, ever. No one's ever been related to sylvidine. They've been allergic to sylvidine. So how about some cherished ideas that probably are not true? Some things we'll never know because we can't study them. Um, if you use topical retinoids prior to any resurfacing procedures, so Retin-A, if you use Retin-A prior to chemical peels, dermabrasion, or laser resurfacing, this has been shown to speed wound healing. So if you're planning on a facial resurfacing, you actually want to retinize them first because you'll get a deeper peel and they'll heal more quickly. But here's the weird part. If you use a systemic retinoid, and specifically Accutane, prior to dermabrasion, full face laser resurfacing, anything like that, they'll get scarring. Have you heard that one? And as a matter of fact, it's a medical legal fact. It's in textbooks. You will lose the lawsuit. Um, so that they have to be off of Accutane for at least six months prior to contemplating a resurfacing procedure. That is probably not true. This is where it comes from. This is where this notion that retinoids cause abnormal scarring comes from. Case report, and this was from Henry Rannick in Chicago, did a lot of, lot of dermabrasion for acne scars. They case report of six patients who developed keloidal scarring after dermabrasion while on or recently discontinued isotretinone. Six, so six case reports. So they write this case report saying, gee, isn't this weird? You know, we do 1,000 dermabrasions a year, and we had some scarring. And then from England, there was this case, three patients who developed keloidal scarring after dermabrasion or argon laser while on isotretinoin. That's it. Nine case reports. 
Nine case reports have become the medical legal standard in facial resurfacing. So when you leave here, if you go look up CO2 laser resurfacing or dermabrasion in a textbook, it will state this as a fact. It will not be referenced. There is no reference because there's no study. This has just become accepted as a medical legal fact. And I warn you, if you do a resurfacing on someone and they're on Accutane and something bad happens, get out your checkbook because you'll, you'll lose the suit. But the truth is, it's never been studied and it's probably bogus. Um, and it's very unlikely we will ever know for sure because who's gonna do this study and find out? Nobody, impossible. Okay, I just wanna tell you some cosmetic myths real quick. How many of you do Botox? Some, okay. When Botox first became available, we were told a number of things by the company. We were told we had to use non-preserved saline. We were told the bottle had to be very carefully swirled because if you shook it, the protein would denature. The botulinum toxin itself was very fragile and you would ruin it. And they also told us, and this was very important, it must be used within four hours. So people would try and line up a bunch of cases, you know, and get them done within four hours. It is completely safe and desirable to use preserved saline. So the preserved saline is benzyl alcohol in, um, in sterile saline bottles, and that has mild anesthetic properties, so it makes it hurt less. Um, so you want to do this, actually. And in this study, 93 patients, 60 were injected with Botox, reconstituted with preservative-containing saline. The rest was preservative-free. Pain perception measured with the visual analog scale. And this is the visual analog pain scale. 1.2 in the preservative group, 4.5 in the preservative free group. Use preservative containing saline. Um, 88 patients in this study received Botox to the glabella with Botox reconstituted one day to six weeks, not four hours, six weeks prior to injection. And they found no significant difference when Botox was reconstituted and stored under refrigeration for up to six weeks. So if you don't use the whole bottle, you don't have to throw it away. That's just silly. And in this study, six patients were treated with Botox for glabella and periocularitis. Half the face was treated with Botox that was gently reconstituted, and the other half, they shook the hell out of the bottle. And there was no difference noted at two weeks or at four months. So it's not that fragile. You know, you don't have to be, that, you don't have to throw it away, and you don't have to be that careful. Um, how many of you have heard that after Botox to the glabella, they have to stay upright? Does anybody still say that? Thou shalt not bend their head forward because something, you know, your toes will fall off or something bad will happen. Okay. Well, here's the glabella. You're injecting the Procerus and the corrugators. If you think about it, sitting upright, it would be more likely to drain down here into the eyes. Lying back would actually be good, or lying forward would actually be good. It would make it less likely to drain. That's nonsense about not moving your head. That actually comes from a doctor in New York who had a patient develop ptosis after getting their glabella injected. And she asked the patient, she said, what did you do after I injected you? And the patient said, I went shoe shopping. And the doctor, being very clever, said, aha, it's your fault because you went shoe shopping. That's why you got this ptosis. And so that's where that comes from, of that you're not supposed to bend forward. So that's silly. They can go do yoga class and stand on their head. Uh, I always just like to show this picture. See these acne scars here? Is there anything you can do for those? Not really. 
I mean, they're not going to, those are ice pick scars. You have to cut those out and either sew them or put grafts there. You can't fill those. How did I make them go away? How did I do this? Any ideas? And I can tell you, I'm going to give you a hint. The difference between these, these time points is 30 seconds. I mean, they're gone. Any guesses? Let me go back. Acne scars? Gone. What did I do? I turned the flash on the camera. That's all I did was turn the flash on. In this case, you see the scars because you see the shadows from the side lighting. In this case, notice how the picture's reddish and not blue. And you can't see the acne scars because the light's filling in the, in the hole and you don't see a shadow. Now, would anybody be so cheap and dumb as to use this in their advertising? Such a cheap and obvious trick. Yeah, it happens all the time. So you'll notice in tricks, here's one where they obviously, this is obviously side lit, and there's obviously a flash here. Funny how their wrinkles went away, isn't it? So the moral of the story is, this has nothing to do with surgical miss. Never believe a picture. You know, you can easily manipulate them. So photo documentation of cosmetic outcomes is highly unreliable. Um, and then lastly, I'm going to leave you with, this is just from this year at the 2013 American College of Mohs Micrographic Surgery. There were some um, papers presented. These are not published yet, so these are just abstracts presented at that meeting, but I thought they were good, good new myths. Why do we put in cuticular sutures? So you put your buried sutures to hold tension and hold it together, right? Why, why do you put a suture on the outside? Why? Does anybody know? To avert the edges, right? Why do you want to avert the edge? Because the idea is that scar contracture will make it flat at the end of the day. So these guys did a split scar study where they, had, they pulled it together with buried, just flat, and then half the scar they averted the edges and the other half they just didn't do anything. And you know what? No difference between flat edges and averting the edges. It didn't matter at all. You actually really don't have to do the cuticular sutures if you don't want to. It doesn't do anything. Uh, and infection rate. How many use sterile gloves and how many use exam gloves for excisions? Most people probably use sterile gloves, sterile surgical gloves for excisions. Two studies were presented at the Mohs College this, meet, this year where they compared just using exam gloves, just out of the box exam gloves versus surgical gloves to see if there was a difference in the infection rate. Identical, didn't matter at all. So I think that's the end of my, my myths talk. So I think, I think we're done. And that was all, and thank you uh, um, for the myths. Now they wanted me to fill up the time, and I won't take the whole half hour, but I wanted to talk to you about this kind of an interesting, sub, uh, interesting subject. Unless there were, were there any questions on myths? I'm sorry, any, real quick before I, I move on. So this is shifting gears, ideals of beauty. And again, I have no conflicts of interest for this talk. Um, how many of you do cosmetics? Or well, there's cosmetics done in your office? Okay, something to think about half, something to think about, well, what are we trying to do? You know, sometimes we do this stuff, you know, we go to these courses and they're, they're next door learning how to do Botox and fillers, but no one ever really stops to ask themselves, what are my goals? You know, what am I, where is this train headed? 
Well, I mean, the obvious answer is you're trying to enhance the appearance of the patient. But that's not an obvious question. How do you decide what makes someone look better? Who are you to, you know, how do you know what's more beautiful and what's less beautiful? What are we trying to achieve with our cosmetic treatments? And that's called the field of aesthetics. And aesthetics is a branch of philosophy. People get PhDs in aesthetics. You know, why is one painting beautiful and another painting not beautiful? Are there absolute standards for these things? How, how do we think about it? And you need to think about that if you're doing cosmetic treatments on people. How is it that you're deciding that you're making them more beautiful? So in cosmetic dermatology, we're generally not trying to make them more beautiful. In other words, we're not trying to change them. We're just trying to restore youth. And that's fundamentally different than what our colleagues in plastic surgery do. Plastic surgeons are trying to change people to make them something, a different person. We're just, we're not really trying to fundamentally alter their appearance. We're not trying to make their nose smaller. We're just trying to make them look like they did 10 years ago. So if that's all your goal is, to reverse the clock, then you don't really need to know anything about aesthetics. What you need to know about is the aging process. So why do we care about aging? What is it that people don't like about it? Well, there's loss of function, loss of ability, illness, and ultimately death. So there's a lot of negatives associated with aging that we'd rather not think about. This is the actress Barbara Feldon. So here she is young, here she is today. So if she went to a cosmetic dermatologist, their goal would be to simply make her look like her. But they wouldn't try and change her somehow, fundamentally. This is Bridget Bardot. There are limits to turning back the clock. <laughs> so there's only so much one can do. So if our goal is simply to make the patient look like they did 10 years ago, then we do not need to know much about aesthetics, but we do need to understand aging. So there's no attempt to improve or change the patient, simply to reverse the natural changes of time. So what are the changes of time? This is what you need to know. If you're gonna reverse them, you need to understand them. First off, the skull. The skull is not static. We all probably have it in our minds that your skull, once you're an adult and you're done growing, your skull's not gonna change. That's not true. The skull rotates slowly. The forehead comes forward and the, the chin and the mandible recede upward. So old people, they don't, they don't have a chin, right? So it's, and they, the maxilla shortens, the distance from the lip to the, to the um, columella of the nose shortens. So you're actually receding here and coming forward here. So your skull's changing. Muscle, there's loss of muscle mass. That's just a big part of aging. I mean, if you think of little old people, you know, little old man might be real fat, but what are his arms and his thighs look like? Toothpicks. So we lose the muscles of facial expression. So the muscles in your face are actually getting diminishing with time. So you're losing volume in your face. Um, you also lose fat in your face. So you lose muscle and you lose fat. Um, the fascia weakens, the fascia that's holding things in place. Now around your eye, around your eyeball, is a fascial layer called the septum. And if the septum weakens, the, there's fat behind the septum. And that fat's gonna herniate forward. So as the septum weakens, what do you get under your eyes? 
Bags. And what are the bags? Fat, herniated fat. The fat's supposed to be back up in the orbit. And so they've herniated forward because the septum's failed. And then lastly, I just mentioned fat. Loss of fat, you get hollow in your temples, hollow in your malar area here and the zygomatic area here. So old people, even if they're fat, they actually look rather skeletal in the upper face. And then there's nothing to hold their skin up because they've had loss of fat and loss of muscle. So the skin comes down and that creates the jowls because the skin is just hanging. There's nothing to hold it up, basically. So this is the young face. And you've often heard this, I'm sure, that it makes a V or a heart shape. There's a single crease under her eye. And what I'm struck about in the young face is how seamless it is. How all the forehead, the cheek, the periocular area, they're all one. You notice how it all blends together seamlessly? This is the older face. Do you see how it comes apart like a jigsaw puzzle a little bit? You know, the periocular area here is clearly separate from the cheek. So the first thing, he's got this festooning. He's got fat herniation. Why? Because the septum failed. He's indented here. He's indented here. He's lost volume here. You see the zygomatic area, how he's hollow in his cheek out here? And this skin, you see all this skin down here? Where does all this skin belong? Here. So the perfect facelift would go straight up. Is there any technical way to do that? No. I mean, you'd have to cut their cheek open. You know, they look like a pirate. So where do they take facelifts? This way, back, which is the wrong direction. So that's why they sort of look skeletal or weird afterwards, like something's not right, because the vector of motion is not the vector of motion. This guy, you want to take that tissue and put it right here, and there's no way to do that surgically. People have tried, by the way. They've tried coming in from the eyelids, you know, coming down that way, and it's just not technically possible. The skin, what about the skin? What happens to your skin with time? Very little. Very little happens to your skin with age. It's minimal. Um, a little bit of elastotic loss, a little thinning, but that's about it. So if you look at dark-skinned people, they can be quite elderly, and does their skin really look that different? No. But fair-skinned people who are subject to photo damage can get wrinkled, leathery, discolored skin that's not from the passage of time, but is from sun exposure, and specifically UV exposure. So here's a patient of mine, she's 83. Do you see that leathery quality? You can even see it in a photograph. She's got a leather, she's wrinkled, she's got spots all over her face. And you kind of look at that and you say, well, you know, that's what 83-year-old cheeks look like, right? This is the cheek that she sits on. This cheek is also 83 years old. It is not leathery, it is not wrinkled. So the passage of time has really has not changed this. So she's got a stretch mark here, that's a bit probably from having babies. Um, but really, so the changes that we see are mostly from sun in the skin itself. But the real big changes of aging are deep or volume loss, loss of fat, loss of muscle, bone, and bony changes. I showed you this earlier, I always just include this. This is just the, the, the disappearing acne scar by turning on the flash. Um, so other than turning back the clock, 
Can we enhance appearance by actually changing the face? That's a very different thing to do. So if you were a plastic surgeon and say you were gonna do a nose job on somebody, you're not turning back the clock, you're changing their face. You're gonna change, and can we, by the way, can you change the position of the nose with fillers? Yeah, you can. You can change the shape of the nose with fillers. So you, as in dermatology, you know, can kind of approximate, at least if someone's got a big hump in the middle of their nose, if you inject filler up high and blow it, you'll make it smooth. So you can change the shape. So there's some things that you could contemplate in dermatology that are not just turning back the clock anymore, but actually changing the person's appearance. And so that raises the question, what is the standard of beauty we surgically aspire to? Aspire to? How do we decide? I mean, put yourself in some plastic surgeon's sh shoes. Do you think they just stand there with a hammer and chisel and kind of eyeball it and go, well, gee, I, I think their noses look better like this. Really, you think that's how they do it? So let's think about standards of beauty. You know, how do we decide? Well, one would be to say, well, it's just culturally relative. There are no standards of beauty. There's no such thing as aesthetics. One painting is not more beautiful than another painting. Um, and really, as a cosmetic doctor, you really should just study Vogue magazine and look at pretty models. And whatever model girls look like, that's what you should try and make your patients look like. And this is a picture by Peter Paul Rubens um, from the 17th century. Now notice, this is Venus at her mirror. She's the ideal of, of beauty. She has a double chin. She needs liposuction. So she would not be considered beautiful today. This is the standard of beauty by the 1960s, considerably different. And how does this relate to dermatology? Well, using Botox and fillers, there are times when, this is uh, Clara Bow, who was considered a great beauty in the 1920s. Notice that her eyebrows are the McDonald's arches. Does anybody really have eyebrows that high on their forehead? Not a chance. So she's pulled her eyebrows out and painted that on. But you know, that could be a beauty decision that you, you make. I say, we're gonna give you the McDonald's arches. That is no longer the standard of beauty for eyebrows. This is the standard of beauty for eyebrows today. It starts here, it reaches a peak two-thirds out and then goes down one-third lower. And so that's the perfectly sculpted eyebrow. And that you can actually do with Botox. And you can, you can change the position of, of uh, eyebrows with fillers. I'm not sure I buy the it's all relative. It's just there are no standards argument though. These are women who are all in the Miss Universe contest. And what strikes you about all of them? They all look alike. So they're all from countries all over the world, and yet the standard of beauty from all these cultures seems to be the same. <clears throat> that would imply that it's not culturally relative, that there's something in, in humanity or in the world that we find beautiful around the world. So certain features that just seem to be in every culture in the world, a high degree of symmetry. We're not, for those of you who do cosmetic work, it's dawned on you by now that people are not symmetric. You know, one eyebrow's higher than another, one nostril's bigger than another. And for those of you who don't do cosmetic work, those of you who do skin cancer work, you should know this. Most people don't go home and stare at themselves in the mirror for two hours. You know, it's not normal. Um, when you do a skin cancer surgery on their nose, they're going to go home and stare at themselves in the mirror for two hours. And for the first time in their whole life, 
they're going to notice that their left nostril is bigger than their right nostril. And who are they going to blame? You, because you fooled with their nose. So it's important, to, you, know, you should always take photographs, and it's important to point out to people, listen, your left eyebrow is higher than your right eyebrow. You know, that has nothing to do with your skin cancer. So, but we, we can create symmetry with Botox and fillers that didn't previously exist, and we find that highly attractive. And if you think of you know, movie stars and models and people who are very, thought to, to be very attractive, they're highly symmetric. We like clean, bright, lesion-free skin and teeth. So that's something we can do as dermatologists too, is make the skin clear. So you know, we don't want to see any blemishes or marks on the skin. High cheekbones, and we're going to talk about this symmetric proportions of the face. And what are these all signs of? These are all signs of health. These are all signs of being a healthy person. So this is the biologic theory of beauty. And the biologic theory of beauty is that you're genetically programmed to be attracted to signs of robust health and thus reproductive ability. So what you're responding to is that person looks really healthy. So for example, women tend to find the shoulder to hip ratio in men attractive, men with a bigger shoulder ratio, or wider shoulders relative to their hips. Um, would be a sign that this is going to be a healthy guy who's going to you know, protect the cave and probably be a good choice. Um, it takes a lot of energy expenditure to, main, to produce and maintain symmetry. You have to be quite healthy to be symmetric. Um, it's hard to explain why we like skinny so much, though. We probably should like fat women because they'd be better mothers, but you know, that one I can't explain. But that's the biologic theory of beauty. There are many theories. I just told you about two, culturally relative, biologic theory, you know, there are a hundred more. We could spend a weekend talking about this. Um, and as I said, people get their PhD in this field thinking about stuff like this. Um, are there ideas about beauty that we can apply to our practice? And how many of you have noticed when you see advertisements for plastic surgeons, it always says artistic eye? Or if it lists their hobby, it's sculpture or painting. The implication of that is that you've got to be an artist to be a good cosmetic doctor. So what if you were lousy, like you, could, you can't match curtains to the furniture, no matter how hard you try. That's just not your gift in this life. So you don't have a good aesthetic eye. You're, you can't. Can you still be a cosmetic provider? Are there principles that you could learn and apply even though you don't have a very good eye? And the answer is, yes, I think there are. So over the centuries, attempts have been made to develop reproducible mathematic formulas, measurements, um, to describe what is beautiful. So you know, a few years ago at the academy, they used to give these courses the perfect mouth, the Klein Glogau point, and the ends of the lips had to be so many sonometers from here. And you know, People have tried to figure these things out. And I want to tell you what I think is the most interesting one. Well, this is not a, I'm sorry, I had this slide, I forgot this. This is photographers. Anybody heard of perfect thirds? Photographers use it. They can spot it across the room. This woman has perfect thirds. From here to here, and from here to here, and here to here are all the same. She's perfectly symmetric, and that's called perfect thirds. Every model has perfect thirds. Um, and it's just something we find attractive. You probably wouldn't be able to create this as a dermatologist. You're not going to do chin implants and things like that. But this would be very important if you were a plastic surgeon. This is what I wanted to tell you about. It's something the ancient Greeks noticed. And the ancient Greeks noticed, you know, they were very into measuring things, very into numbers. 
And they noticed that if you measured the height to width ratio of natural objects that everybody thought was beautiful. So what's an example of an object that everybody thinks is beautiful? A rainbow. Everybody likes, oh, a rainbow, isn't that pretty, a rainbow, you know? Or a rose petal. Everybody thinks a rose petal's pretty. It's not culturally relative. It's something everybody likes. If you measure the height, I'm sorry, the height to width ratio of a seashell or a rainbow or a rose petal or anything that people, natural objects that people find beautiful, a very weird thing happens. You always get the same number. Isn't that weird? So in this butterfly, this is moving and it keeps being the same ratio, the long, short to long. And if you did the overall from here to here compared to here to here, you're gonna get the same number. In this nautilus shell, height to width, you're gonna get the same number. And that number is this. And the Greeks called it phi. Uh, and it's an irregular number. I don't know if you remember pi from grade school. Pi is an irregular number, it never repeats. It goes on forever without repeating, which is a very unusual and rare phenomenon for a ratio. This number does that too. This never repeats, it goes on forever. But it's basically one to 1.6. That's how you can kind of remember, one to 1.6. It's an irrational number, that means it goes on forever, doesn't repeat. And the Greeks called this the golden ratio. And it does another weird thing mathematically. So here's phi, 1.6 to 1. 1.6 to 1. So there's a, there's a long half and a short half. But here's the weird part how you can generate a mathematic progression. If I add these two together and get a new number, the total, and then I compare the total to the long half, guess what the ratio is? Five, it's the same. So you can infinitely progress this and get this bigger and bigger, and you keep getting the same ratio over and over. So they knew that. So they designed it into architecture and art. They knew about this ratio. So the Parthenon's full of, full of this. Everywhere you look, that ratio, 1.6 to 1, is there. And this led them to generate the perfect face, the perfect distance of the pupils, the perfect height to width ratio of the face, upper lip to lower lip. And you see it in their statues. This was rediscovered by the Renaissance artists, and they named it the divine ratio. They thought it was the hand of God in nature because you kept seeing this ratio over and over. So it's in a lot of paintings of, guess what the height to width ratio of her face is? Or here. Or I'm sorry, I thought I had the Last Supper too. It's all in the Last Supper. It wasn't by accident. They would measure it out first and then paint it in because they knew about it. So they knew about this progress, and they knew about this progression too. Can we apply these principles to our practice? Can we use the divine ratio? This is the divine ratio applied to a human face. Um, and plastic surgeons know about this. So remember earlier I said, do you think they just stand there and eyeball when they do a nose job on somebody? No, they measure it out in advance. The one to 1.6 for the um, width, the height, um, for how the nose is gonna, how far it's gonna come out. And so this is the perfect face based on phi. So in cosmetic dermatology, we can apply this, how much filler should I use and where should I put it? Now, 
I measured this photograph, and guess what the ratio of her upper lip to her lower lip is? Exactly. It's in, so whatever plastic surgeon injected her, because those aren't real, whoever did this knew this and may, gave her the perfect ratio. This is Melanie Griffith. Why do her lips look weird? Because they didn't follow the golden ratio. This is 50-50 and it looks funny, doesn't it? They should have put less in the top and more in the bottom and they shouldn't have put it out here. It just looks weird. And her facelift is way too tight. You know, and it looks kind of weird too. Um, I don't want to say this is the end all be all to beauty. I think it's very interesting. I think it's been interesting that artists have used it. I just wanted to show you, this is a study that was done from University of Toronto. And it's hard to appreciate, but if you study these pictures for a minute, you'll notice that in the top row, they're varying the height to width ratio of the face. And in this series of photographs, they're, they're varying. You see how the eyes are very close set here? and they're farther apart here. So they're electronically morphing the picture, changing it. <coughs> and then they asked people to pick out what was the most beautiful. And the ones, this is what people picked, and this is what people, this is height to width, and this is width of the eye, spacing of the eyes. Neither of those is phi. What people picked was the most average. That's actually, what they liked was the most average face, the most typical. So, the Greeks, it's not the end-all and be-all, but it is something that can be helpful and useful for your practice. So certainly our perception of beauty involves proportionality, symmetry, and health. And I think these are all important um, features that we can, when you're using fillers and when you're using Botox, just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do something. Uh, and these are important for you to think about. <clears throat> and you'll get better. You'll have happier patients. You'll get better results. Then, of course, you could just give up and just inject and pull until you get tired. And with that, I will stop talking and thank you for your attention.